Good morning. What a blessing it is to be able to hear those words again, to be reminded of the goodness of our God and his faithfulness to us and his, um, his expectations of us. Honestly, one of the things that I have been thinking about over the course of our study is that, you know, God is a God of standards, you know, and while some people look at Christianity and they say, well, these standards are hard or, or maybe even they're hard, maybe someone might say that they're harsh, um, I look at standards and I think, I don't want to be a part of anything that doesn't have some standards. Like, I want to, some, there needs to be something to measure off of in everything that I do personally. These are, this is just a personal thoughts here. And one of the most comforting things about biblical Christianity is that there, there is an absolute standard. And also what that standard brings, it not only is like an understanding of what is required of you, but also the ability to find your way back. The ability to find your way back. It's like, you know, having no absolute standard is like trying to travel a path that you've gone once or twice without a map, you know, trying to, you've gone down once or twice, it may be familiar, but not familiar enough to travel, Um, trying to travel that path without a map, that's like trying to travel the path of life without some standard, so I'm so thankful that um, we have that moral standard, And, and I like the words that Blake used as he prayed this morning to describe the Bible. I'm so thankful also for your willingness to submit to that standard. One of the things that I love about you guys so much is that um, for all of our faults, and we, and we all have a few, um, for all of our, our faults, we're willing to uh, admit that we're not perfect and also we're willing to submit to uh, the standard that, that God has set for us. Uh, It gives me a lot of confidence in your futures and in my future. Um, It's why we can look at people in the faith that are at the beginning of their faith or maybe struggling or maybe have reverted back to some bad habits. We can look at them and we can have confidence because as long as you're a part of this church, at least, and this is the one we'll talk about because that's why we're here, or that we're here, as long as you're a part of this church, there is this hope that you can regain um, a following of that absolute and objective and and moral standard. It gives me a lot of hope for you and for me um, in the midst of troubles and trials and and even our own sort of failings. Today we're going to be in 2 Peter verses... Uh, chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. It's going to be the second, uh, it's going to be its own sermon, but really the second sermon in the pursuit of Christian character, light in the darkness, the pursuit of Christian character. If you would, before we really dive into this, let's let's pray and let's just ask God to meet with us this morning and, and beg for his kindness in, in giving us knowledge. Father God, Lord, we are so grateful for your love and for your mercy and your kindness to us, Lord, your faithfulness to us. It reaches throughout all generations, Lord. We thank you for your preexistence and your preeminence in all things, that you have called us before the foundation of the world, that you have chosen us before the foundation of the world. And in the right time, you have uh, selected us and made us your children. What a joy it is to be called sons and daughters of the living God. Lord, while we may have doubts and we may have concerns and we, ha- we may have worries, Lord, um, ultimately we can revert back to trusting in you and having faith in you and following you, living for you. Lord, thank you for the commitment of the people in this room to not only hear and read and study and obey, but obey your word, Father. Lord, help us to be people who um, are virtuous. 
who live by a moral standard that is set by a holy God. Lord, help us to never take a cheapened version of Christianity. The cheapened version may be easier. It may be more simple to to navigate in the sense that it's easier to follow. But Lord, the holiness and the virtuous path is the one that leads to life. It's the one that verifies, confirms, ratifies our calling and election. Lord, we trust you today because we know who you are. We trust you today because we know what you've done. And we trust you today because we know what that does for us. Lord, help us to stop trusting in ourselves and to have faith in the God who heals, who takes away our diseases and our iniquities and who sets us on a solid rock and brings us to a place where we're more like his son. We praise you because you've never left us and you won't. So it's with that understanding that we study your word and we draw into a deeper understanding of who you are. We love you. We praise you. It's in the one name that is worthy to be praised, the name that is above all names, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Today, we will be in the second part of our pursuit of Christian character. Last week, we looked at the eight virtues of Christian character. These virtues were not only eight virtues of the Christian life, but they are eight, uh, they are not the only, excuse me, eight virtues of Christian life, but they are eight of the most necessary for sure. These are eight virtues, or you can look at them as, um, they are eight virtues objectively, but also you can look at them as eight signs or eight verifications or eight proofs that I belong to Jesus. Eight signs, eight verifications, eight proofs that you belong to Jesus. These signs give us confidence that we are his because they show a spiritual change. And we know that a spiritual change can only come from a change of nature. And that change of nature produces spiritual change because the one who changes our nature is God, and he does it on a spiritual level that has external, it has physical rewards and benefits. Do you remember these eight virtues? It started with faith. The second was virtue or or moral excellence. The third, knowledge. And a knowledge, self-control. And self-control, steadfastness or endurance, perseverance. To steadfastness, godliness. To godly, from godliness to brotherly love, Philadelphia, and from Philadelphia to agape, sacrificial, Christian love. These are qualities that belong to every Christian. They belong to you. You have been gifted them when you receive Jesus. But they are also qualities that we'll find out more today. We saw last week too, they must be Uh, worked out they must be planted in us deeply and fertilized and watered and nurtured to harvest more and more of the same these qualities belong to every Christian they should be in every believer and we should at times I believe more often than not we should be able to see them physically demonstrated in the life of the church through its mass of individuals. So we'll see today that, and I want you to remember this all throughout life, and you've heard me say it, life is a marathon and not a sprint, but we'll see today, in addition to that thought, that life is not made of mountaintop experiences. The Christian life is not made of mountaintop experiences, but just consistent Time upon time, place upon place, work upon work, growth. All of these virtues are important, but it is important to know that they begin with faith and they are completed with love. The way we know these virtues honor God is because they begin with faith in Christ. 
they continue with faith in Christ, in him alone, in, him, in his power, in his work, and they are completed by our love for Christ, our love for our neighbor, that's our brother and sister in Christ, and a love that calls us to show empathy and compassion to a lost and dying world. Today I want to expound on these virtues um, by reading 2 Peter 1, 8 through 11, and we'll take a few points from that, and hopefully you will see this as sort of the, sort of the more laying of the foundation of how we mature uh, in the Christian life, how we grow in the pursuit of Christian character. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former, former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fail, never fall. For in this way, there will, be rich, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I think Peter has two motives with our verses today, and one would be to exhort the believers to continue in this new and virtuous nature, to continue down this virtuous path, but also would be to point a finger at these false teachers that we're going to see very soon. These false teachers who were teaching a message that was the opposite of the virtuous path, the ones that had abandoned their new nature for a lie. Now, we may look at ourselves and we think, we may look at these verses, we may look at ourselves and we think that uh, our behavior is above this. That we, like Peter, would never deny Jesus, right? Especially not three times. But the devil's schemes are tremendously powerful. There are more tactics to get us off the virtuous path probably than we have thought about. So we must be careful. We must guard ourselves. We must never uh, come to a place of comfort. I know that it may be difficult to hear or it may be something that you understand, but the Christian life is never a life of relaxation. It may be a life of peace, but it's not a life of relaxation. It's not a life where we can say, okay, um, I'm saved. All right, we're good. As a matter of fact, the salvation is... Is not the is not the uh, the end, right? Coming to Christ is not the end. It's really just the start. One tactic that the devil uses would be to use great victory and great rewards against us, to entice us with comfort and stability. One of the most common practices that the enemy uses to get you off of the virtuous path is to, is to trick you into believing that the blessings that God has, the physical blessings that God has given you are from yourself and therefore you should kind of take a victory lap of relaxation when those things come. Or that you should work to produce more and more of those results. You must be careful in life because I have seen it in my own life and I have seen it in this church with people who are still here, with people who are not. That we get rewarded or we get provided with these great blessings and our tendency as opposed, as opposed to doubling down and working harder toward the virtuous living is to double down and work harder in those things that we have been blessed with. One of the devil's schemes is to, is to allow the blessings that God has given you to be your comfort and stability. Another 
scheme that the devil uses would be to allow your great trials and troubles to be used against you. To entice you during those difficult times like he enticed Job to just curse God and die. Another would be to numb our minds towards the wrath of God or his call to holiness. To ask the question that he asked Eve, did God really say? Did God really say? Did he really mean be holy as I am holy? Did he really mean by the words of Peter to pursue faith and to pursue moral excellence and to pursue self-control, to pursue knowledge, to pursue um, um, perseverance and, and godliness and, and love? Did he really mean it like he's saying it in the Bible? Did God really say? Another thing the devil uses to get us off the virtuous path is to give us a mind like Jonah that is so mad, that is so mad at the disobedience of people that God wants to save, of image bearers, that, that the only empathy that we can come up with is they deserve what they're getting. Jonah was pouting because God wanted to redeem a nation. One of the tactics of the devil is to make us so desensitized to the fact that people are image bearers and their destination is wrath if someone doesn't step in the way. He numbs our hearts and our minds to false teachers so that we can't see their schemes and we can't see their work. He gave the false teachers in 2 Peter the idea that moral good was not to be judged. And because believers are free in Christ, they are free to behave how they want. Many people don't exactly know who the, people, the false teachers are. Some people think it was the Gnostics. Um, many people think it was the Antinomians. But the Antinomian idea is that you are free in Christ. And your freedom allows you to do what you please because, after all, grace has been given to you. It's a very tempting thing to do as a Christian to, be, to believe that our freedom allows us to be free to do whatever we want. As a matter of fact, some of us as Christians, and I have been guilty of this before, there are areas of our lives where we, re, we have reverted to a more unholy way under the auspice of grace. We call it licensure. As if grace gives us a license to do what we want, which is, by the way, is heavily refuted in the Bible. There are many temptations that the enemy uses to get us off the virtuous path, and most of those temptations we have all experienced, all have gone through, and maybe even right now we are experiencing. Today I want to look further at Christian character and I want you to remind, remember as we're going through these that uh, Christian character and the virtuous path and I want you to remember as we're going through these that in all of these things that the enemy might use, God has given us a calling and a means to defeat them, to overcome them and to even thrive through them. The first thing I want you to see from our passage today is a new and virtuous nature produces a fruitful life. We saw the virtuous nature, the virtuous nature, the new nature last week, but I want you to see a new and virtuous nature produces a fruitful life. Look at verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. One question that has been continually asked to me in many conversations that I've had with people is, how do you know for sure? How do I know for sure that I'm a Christian? I have doubts about myself, and I have doubts about other people, and sometimes I have doubts about God. How do I know for sure that I'm a Christian? You may have had those questions at times. Maybe you still do. 
If we've done anything over the last few weeks, I hope that we have worked to lay a foundation of assurance for you, to lay a foundation of understanding for you. When answering that question, how do I know for sure that I'm a Christian? I hope that as we're laying this foundation, that you wouldn't go back to a prayer that you prayed when you were young. When answering the question, how do I know for sure that I'm a Christian, I I hope that you wouldn't go back to certain feelings that you have in your heart or whether you get emotional when that that certain song comes on the radio or, or we sing it at church gathering or just when you're thinking about Jesus or maybe you get tingles when someone mentions the Lord's name in a positive way on television or on social media. I hope that when you think about the assurance that you have in Christ, you don't go back to your long history of church attendance and service. Being around the church and being churchy and even acting in a Christian way makes you as much Christian as flying an airplane makes you a bird. So how have we learned to answer the question over the last few weeks? Am I a Christian? How have we learned better over the last few weeks to understand that We can have confidence. I haven't done this yet in this study, but if I were having doubts in my own life, in my own mind, or maybe I just wanted to articulate better why I have confidence in my faith, I would ask myself these three questions. And it's not on on there. You're going to have to do a little work today. Sometimes I put things, sometimes I don't put things on the board because I feel like you have to care a little bit more to write them down than just have them on your bulletin or, or see them up there. But if I, were gonna, if I were worried about, if I were questioning or I wanted to be able to articulate why I have confidence in my faith, I would ask myself these three questions. Upon what authority is my salvation based? Upon what authority is my salvation based? Hey, by the way, All of these we've answered over the last few weeks. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of God, of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Upon what authority is my salvation based? A faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The second question I would ask myself, the second question I would remind myself when I'm talking about the confidence of my faith is, upon what, upon whose ability am I trusting? Upon whose ability am I trusting? His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them we may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. Upon whose ability am I trusting? His divine power, his life and godliness, his calling, his nature. And then I would ask myself, what is the evidence that I have the answers to one questions one and two correctly? What is the evidence that I have answered questions one and two correctly? And you see that in 2 Peter 1, verses 5 through 11. What then is the result if we have answered rightly all three of those questions? Peter says, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says these qualities. Peter is specifically pointing back to the virtues we find in verses 5 through 7. But I believe he has uh, the the entire thought in mind, the entire thought of uh, 2 Peter 1 that we've studied so far in mind. That if you are trusting in the authority of Christ and the gift of God, if you are trusting in the power, in his power and in his nature, if you are trusting in all of that that has changed you, then you are kept from being ineffective 
and unfruitful. In verse 8, Peter is saying two things about these virtues. He's saying they must exist and they must abound in order to have comfort in your faith. They must exist and they must abound in order to have this assurance in your faith. But also they must exist and they must abound for you to have the faith that is necessary to be a part of the family of God. Peter says if we have these virtues, we will not be unfruitful. So the opposite of that is we will bear fruit. Bearing fruit is a part, partly a result of, or primarily a result of being a part of the vine. He is the vine, we are the branches. The branches produce what the vine sends through them. We know that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So if we are a part of this vine, this spiritual vine that produces this, then another fruit we will produce is the fruit of the Spirit. We also see verses like Colossians 1.10, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of of God. In Matthew 7, 17 through 20, we see, so every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased disease tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruit. If these qualities are ours and, and they are increasing, not only does it give us confidence in our faith, but it gives us fruit production. But not just any type of fruit, good fruit. There is bad fruit. But we produce good fruit. How do we know that there is bad fruit? Peter says that you will uh, not be unfruitful, but also you will not be ineffective. Ineffective. You can bear fruit, friends, that is bad fruit. You can do a lot of christian sort of things. You can speak the language fluently. You can have everyone thinking that everything is okay. You can bear fruit that is unhealthy, that is not good for the Christian life. So he says, we will bear fruit, but it's good fruit. It's not ineffective. The word for ineffective is the same word for use, uh, use for idle workers, uh, like we see in James 2.20. Do, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is dead, is useless? In one sense, Peter is saying you should not be unfruitful, meaning bear no fruit. But in another sense, he is saying you should not bear the wrong fruit. Meaning that Christian-type work is idle work if it's not virtuous work. If it's not founded by faith, if it doesn't have love running all through it, if it's not done in the Spirit and in the power of God and by trusting in Him, it is idle work. We see that that which is not done by faith is sin. So our work is virtuous if it's founded in faith and moral excellence and knowledge of God and self-control and steadfastness and godliness and love. But apart from that, it can look really Christian and still be ineffective and idle. Their friends then must be a constant fruit inspection that must be done in our own lives to make sure that the fruit we are producing is good fruit and is not ineffective. We will be tempted by idle work as much as anything probably in our lives. So we need to compare the work that we have to those first three questions. Upon whose authority is this work 
done? Upon whose ability? What power produces this fruit? And then my answers to the first and the second question will prove, will answer the third question. Is this an idle fruit or is this a good fruit? Are you surrendered to the work of the Lord, friends? I want to tell you, if you're really committed to vintage church and the ideology of vintage church, but you are not surrendered to the Lord in the way that is prescribed in 2 Peter, you will produce bad-looking bad-tasting, bad-looking, but awfully vintage fruit. Are you living fruitful and effective lives? I legitimately think the only way we know is by doing regular inventories. When we examine our lives, when we examine the production of, I'm telling you, I, and why not I mean inventory, what do the, if you've ever worked in retail, at an inventory, do they count everything on the shelf, every item that the, that the store sells, or do they only count a few? They count everything, right? In most inventories, they count every single item on the shelf. What I am telling you is, as a Christian, I need to examine myself, everything, regularly. Because the more you know yourself and the more you know the things you do, the easier it is to weed out the bad and keep the good. If these qualities are in us and are increasing, then we are growing in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, Peter says. And we are not ineffective, we are not unfruitful, but we are fruitful. There's a second idea I want you to see today, it's found in verse 9, and it's this. The abandonment of that virtuous nature produces spiritual blindness. Look at verse 9. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former, former sin. Not only does the lack of these virtues cause us to become ineffective and unfruitful, we produce the wrong kind of fruit or sometimes no fruit at all, but often we can't even see it because of our spiritual blindness. Now, I've often said this in the Bible Belt. The Bible Belt is one of the hardest places to minister. It's one of the hardest places to share the gospel. And it's changing a little bit, but it's still pretty true that everybody believes in God and everybody on some level, or a vast majority of people still, on some level, would say that they're a Christian. Now, it's slowly changing, I understand. There are so many people who believe in God, though, in, in this part of the country. There are so many people who would identify as a Christian who, who really have no clue. Because having a knowledge of God without the virtuous work of God produces spiritual blindness. Whoever lacks these qualities, what are these qualities? Do you know? Can you look at the context if you're studying this? What are these qualities? For if you like these qualities, it's connecting it back which the previous verse was connected back. What are these qualities? Faith, moral excellence, all of that list of eight virtues. If a person has a knowledge of God without the virtues of God, they are blind. They think they are whole, but they are not whole. They are really blind. Peter is saying you're like a man who can't see far away. So he's squinting to see everything. I can relate to this because if I took my contacts out right now, I couldn't make the faces out past about the fourth row. The thing about physical blindness is it's obviously recognizable. But the thing about spiritual blindness is that it is not so easily discernible. Part of the reason is, is that people are very adaptable. Adaptability makes us sort of complacent to blindness. If you go a certain way for a certain time and do a certain thing for a long period of time and, and you just deal with things, that eventually it becomes normal. 
This is why spiritual inventories are so important. Spiritual inventory is an attempt to discover blindness. I remember, now I'm not saying anything about our church per se. I'm just giving you an illustration here. I remember when we, the first week we came back from um, our, our, our camping trip this summer. First week we were here, my mind was racing. Like every child, no offense because it doesn't bother me up here, every child... Every conversation, every book that dropped, the different parts about our worship service, I was like, my mind was racing. It was like, all right, is this right? Is this a problem? Is this, what other, is this how other people see us? Like, it was, my mind was racing. It's because I had spent so long just being okay with a lot of things, and I think most of them are okay, that when I was not around them and then I came back to them, it was a reality check to me. Now, again, I'm not saying that our church needs a foundational change. I'm just giving you an example here. We go down a path so long or for a certain time that we can't even see the problems because we become, for all intents and purposes, blind to them. We adapt. So we lack clarity. We lack discernment. We lack this virtuous living. And on some level, we assume that it's supposed to be that way. For a Christian, we have the Spirit of God, which gives us light and clarity. But when we reject virtuous living, it gives us near, we produce nearsightedness. So ineffective or unfruitful Christians are deceived often because there is just enough clarity to see but not enough to thrive. There is just enough clarity to believe that they are walking down the right path but not enough to thrive. With just enough squinting, with just enough straining, you can go on with the status quo and act relatively Christian. So we often accept some level of blindness as normal. Like I said, if I took my contacts out right now, I wouldn't be able to see past the first, fourth row. Now, I could function. I could drive still, probably, maybe not at night. I could work. I could preach up here just fine. I can read this iPad. I can read my Bible. But that's not the way it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to have clarity and precision in my vision. I'm supposed to see your, be able to see your smile, which I would not be able to do to the first row. I'm supposed to be able to see the colors of your clothes and, and what you've worn. I'm supposed to see your reactions. I'm supposed to see with clarity. Sure, you can function in your life with less than 2020. But I want to tell you, friends, salvation, trusting in the divine power of God, following him, living a virtuous life, gives us better than 2020. Can I warn you of something, though? A little spiritual blindness robs us of a ton of clarity on everything in our lives. Most of our decisions are spiritual in nature and need spiritual clarity. From who we trust, whether it's pastors or leaders, churches or government, doctors or experts, this blindness affects every area of our critical thinking as it pertains to our decision making. As a matter of fact, I think we have gone way too long accepting the idea that most of our conditions are emotional, hormonal, genetic, and not spiritual. Most of our conditions at least have a spiritual aspect, if not are primarily spiritual. Whether it's 
anxiety, whether it's depression, whether it's our ability to learn, our inability to learn, whether it's our struggle with food or our struggle with laziness, whether it's our disbelief in ourself to be able to grow in faith or or maybe our disbelief in God, whatever it may be, I believe that we've gone too long accepting that that's who we are. And that it's not a spiritual condition that can be remediated, solved, and even to a point of thriving with a spiritual answer. Blindness affects our, this blindness affects our critical thinking. You know, I've never met a virtuous person who was also an irrational person. I've never met a, a, a virtuous person whose first thought is to blow everything up when they get bad or, or to abandon ship when things get bad. I've never met a virtuous person like that. I've never met a, a virtuous person who was also led by his impulsiveness primarily. But every overreactor, every irrational person, every person given over to constant anger, even the one who lacks wisdom, even the one who lacks patience, everyone I've ever met is either immature in their virtuous living or lacks the spirit necessary to live a virtuous life. Every time I've lacked virtuous living in my own life, every time I've been led by uh, an irrational mindset or an impulsive nature, it is because I lacked the maturity in the spirit necessary to push those things down. Friends, it doesn't have to be that way, though. Peter is saying the scales have been lifted already. He's saying you don't have to be nearsighted. You don't have to only, you don't have to be able to only see just a little bit. You don't have to be blind. And he goes on to say, if we choose to go back to our ways of blindness, it, it's as if we've forgotten that we've been cleansed from the sin that so easily blinds us. If we choose to go back to our spiritual blindness, it also indicates that forgiveness of sin and the work of Jesus means very little to us. And metaphorically speaking, if we continue to dip back into the well of sin and we, and we continue to choose uh, blindness, metaphorically speaking, we nail Jesus back to the cross over and over again. He paid for our sins once and for all. Those were over and done with. Can I tell you, Jesus is alive, and it is your sin that was dead and is dead. And that should be increasingly evident in your life as you grow in him. I want to finish today how we started with this understanding. A new and virtuous nature is how our calling and election are confirmed. It's the last point, third point. A new and virtuous nature is how our calling and election are confirmed. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, what are these qualities? These eight virtuous characteristics plus the many more that God will reveal to you. If you practice these qualities, you will never fail. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We see the therefore in the beginning of verse 10. And, you know, when we see the therefore, we have to ask what the therefore is there for. This one's an easy one. You just go back to verse 9. That's all you have to do. Verse 9 says that those who do not live virtuous lives show no evidence that they have been forgiven. They are blind. Therefore, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Those who live non-virtuous lives are blind. Therefore, be all the more diligent to work out your calling and election. 
by be all the more diligent, Peter is saying that you must take decisive action. The The wording here is a decisive action that is taken over and over and over again. Friends, I know the tendency is to relax and to find peace when you come to Christ. For many of you, and it's sad to say, and I'm very sorry that your lives have been this way. For many of you, the only peace you've ever known is Jesus. And I'm thankful that you know that. But I know that your home life was not great. I know that your your family life, I know that you've had friends that have abandoned you. I know that you've probably had relationships that have gone bad. For many of you, the only peace that you've ever truly known is Jesus. And the tendency is to relax. But I want to tell you, friends... Wars are not won at the battlefront. They are won in times of peace where the preparation is done. If you want to be able to face the onslaught of of trials, if you want to be able to face the onslaught of troubles that comes inevitably to every human being because you are mankind... You are born a man or born a woman. If you, want to, if you want to be able to face those, when Christ takes hold of us, I know our tendency, our, our hope is to, is to just relax and have peace. But I need to tell you, you need to accept that peace means, peace means this uh, internal understanding that everything's going to be taken care of in the future, but also with an understanding that I have to work now. And until he returns. The battles are always won in times of peace because that's when the work is put in. If you wait until the war to start moving for and this is you you think you you have all stopped paying attention. You have all stopped paying attention because you don't think you do this. And this is what every single Christian does. We get comfortable. We get complacent, and then it hits the fan, and we start praying to God. Lord, help me through this. Why why are you not helping me? I've trusted you. I believe in you. Help me through this. And he helps us through it, and we walk on down the road. I can relax now. I can rest. Friends, I want to tell you, if you do the work in the time of peace, war is simple. This war is simple. If you do the work in time of peace. Peter says, be sure. On top of trying, on top of trying, make sure over and over again that you are working out your calling an election. Objectively, we confirm our calling an election by practicing virtuous living, living for truth. Subjectively, this gives us an internalized peace that we belong to for us. Our peace doesn't mean we belong to God. We belong to God and we receive peace. Do you understand there's a small distinction there? The the failing Christian walks around with eyes squinting. And he's always falling or stumbling. The The thriving Christian walks around with a boldness and a confidence that is outside of himself and brought upon by a spiritual reality that is in Christ Jesus. The Christian who is sure of his calling and election, he proves it by a consistent life. Again, not monumental moments, but a thousand moments along the way. A personal goal for me then is this. I'm going to work so hard in the mundane, normal moments of life that when I see victory in my faith, I won't remember how I got there. If all you have to go back on is this time that uh, a preacher came and he spoke really well and you remember getting emotional and you remember walking an aisle and you remember praying and you remember feeling really sorry. If that's all you have to go back on, that's a problem. If all you have to go back on are revival services or baptismal waters, if all you have to go back on is chill bumps or tears, that's a problem. 
Now those things may be the catalyst to get us to these other moments, but the ones that build our faith are the ones that we can't even put our finger on down the road. Incremental progress. A thousand works that we might not even remember. I'm not going to say much about verse 11, but I do want to say this. Look at verse 11. For in this way there, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Peter is not saying, this is all I'll say, Peter is not saying that entrance into heaven is granted by virtuous living. Peter's theology is congruent with Paul's and it's congruent with the Gospels. It's congruent with the other New Testament authors. He is not saying that entrance into heaven is granted by virtuous living. But he is saying entrance into heaven is denied by the lack thereof. Salvation is never about works, but salvation is never without works. So my friends, we should be all the more sure to work out our calling and election. We should be all the more sure to make sure that there is meat to our faith. That the fruit of our lives are modeled by faith, love, and moral excellence. And we look back and we answer those three questions in 2 Peter 1 because of the work that Jesus has done for us and not by ourselves. Because of his divine power, his life and calling, his nature. Pray with me. Lord, you're so good to us, better than we could deserve or better than we can earn. We pray that you would uh, strengthen us in the power of your calling, that we would work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Lord, we know that if we belong to you, that we belong to you, and that's final, but help us to never take that for granted. Help us to never take advantage of your grace and your kindness. But instead, see that gift as beautiful and worthy of working for. By grace we are saved, we know, Lord. But we know that salvation without works is not salvation at all. We praise you. We love you. We thank you for your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.